Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Vaughn. Every Monday night, we're live and local with news, conversation, and culture from this place we call home. Coming up, UC Berkeley and city leaders want to build student housing at People's Park. Protesters want the school to build elsewhere. It's complicated, and we'll get the latest. Also, in 2024, San Francisco residents will vote on the mayor, six board of supervisor seats, and a number of ballot measures addressing public safety, addiction screenings, and even middle school algebra. Will 2024 reshape the city's future? Finally, we'll meet the Swami Three, the Bay Area's modern-day partridge family, consisting of three teenage brothers who play classic rock. Stay with us, but first, this news. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan, and this is our first live show of the new year. So welcome back, everyone. Later this hour, we're going to dig into the big year ahead in San Francisco politics, and we're going to meet the Swami Three. They're a trio of teen and tween brothers who are entertaining Bay Area audiences with their classic rock music. They are truly adorable. Um, But first, a plan to develop People's Park in Berkeley has created a firestorm. UC Berkeley wants to use the park to build housing for 1,100 students and 100 unhoused individuals while preserving 60% of the park's green space. But opposition has been fierce. While the issue is moving through the courts, People's Park has been the site of passionate, old-fashioned, Berkeley-style protest, complete with police and riot gear and a lot of shipping containers. I'm happy to have Ali Markovich and Supriya Yelimeli from Berkeley Side joining us to explain the current situation, the mood in Berkeley, and what's going to happen next. Welcome to State of the Bay, Ali and Supriya. Hi. Thanks for having us. Oh, so happy that you could join us. Allie, I want to start with you. For people who aren't deep in Ber- into Berkeley, tell us a little bit about where the park is located and its significance to the city. So People's Park is located on one city block in the south side neighborhood of Berkeley, which is right next to UC Berkeley campus. Uh, it's really a tiny plot of land compared to the rest of the city, but it's the site of uh, historic and present day drama that's playing out uh, today. And the historic dramas, it was a place of protest in the 60s, right? Yeah. So the story of People's Park, um, I think many, it's sort of enshrined in the history books of Berkeley, um, but sort of started in 1967 um, when the university purchased that plot of land intended to uh, uh, build housing on it, it knocked down the housing that was already there, um, but ran out of money and left it with the intention of building a parking lot. Um, but because they never did that, um, the land sort of lay fallow. And that's when a bunch of young people had the idea to build um, a park uh, on that land and sort of take it into their own hands. And that's sort of sparked the beginning of this push and pull between activists and the university ever since. Mm, and it's called People's Park, but essentially it's private property, isn't it? It belongs to the University of California, Berkeley. And that's definitely something that um, a lot of people who are involved in the protest now, I think Supriya can speak to um, an idea that people have talked about historically and today is that, you know, what is the idea of ownership when this is stolen indigenous land anyways. Uh, That's something that people bring up a lot. 
Well, Sabrina, you're, you've been there and, um, recently during winter break, Berkeley came in and sort of retook the park. Describe for us what happened last week. Yeah, it was a pretty intense night. Um, leading up to it, a lot of folks had kind of been tipped off in one way or another that there would be some movement. So when it came to the night, there were around 40 people occupying the park, uh, expecting something to happen. And then around midnight, some white vans rolled in. And at this point, uh, a text message alert had already been sent out to everyone who subscribes to it. And I was at the other side of the park and you hear people yell out, UC police, UC police. And I would say around 50 to 75 UC police officers came out of the van um, and ran directly to the treehouse in the community kitchen where folks were occupying, um, again, in preparation for what they believed the university was going to do that night. And slowly over the course of the evening, police officers pushed out their perimeter, um, pushing folks further and further out of the park. And then that night, they also made around five arrests. Um, most of those arrests were for allegations of refusing a dispersal order. So all of that happened in the course of around three hours. And then by 4 a.m., 5 a.m., they were coming in down College Avenue with trucks holding shipping containers. And a lot of the work happened that night by the next morning. Most of the perimeter was surrounded with double-stacked shipping containers. What, um, Supriya, tell me why was this happening now? A lot of people who organize for the park um, believe that the university chose this timing because students are off on winter break. And the university, uh, to that respect, said, yes, they did do it while students were away for winter break, also because at that time the south side neighborhood is less occupied and it would mean less disruptions for them um so yeah they chose this timing because there's fewer people in south side and that you know goes in multiple ways it means that there is less possibility of resistance in numbers and it also means that from the university standpoint it, it could be safer for them mm-hmm. well it's i mean there have been plans to build on the park, do something with the park for a long time. Is Was there something significant about this moment um, in terms of the, the university deciding that it was going to clear the park out, Supriya? Well, they did try to clear the park out in August 2022. And at that point, there was no lawsuit barring them from building at the park. Mm-hmm. In August 2022, they entered in a very similar way, but... They were unsuccessful. People sat down in front of the bulldozers. People were in the trees. Um, Eventually, they damaged the construction equipment and tore down the fencing when, you know, hundreds of people protested the next day. But immediately after that, they the university got hit with the lawsuit, which meant that for this entire time, they haven't been allowed to do construction. And that's still the case. But they have been allowed to put up perimeter fencing. So I think it was just a matter of time. People were waiting to see when they would do it. But um, though there isn't any movement on the court front just yet, some folks think that maybe the university expects it to come soon. So that's Mm -hmm. why they did it. Well, Allie, you know, as we said in the introduction, the university wants to build student housing, and there's no dispute that the school does not have enough housing for its current students. Um, In addition to those 1,100 units, there's going to be 100 units for unhoused individuals, so a combination of student housing and um, housing for unhoused people. 
What's the problem with that? I think that people who are involved in the protest would not say that there's a problem building student housing in general and acknowledge that as a need. But I think they're asking why build it on this historic site uh, and this site that's significant to people who are homeless and people who have made that park a community space for a while. So why not build the badly needed student housing somewhere else? And I think from their perspective, it's a choice that's uh, pitting this need for student housing against this other need at the park. Um, I think from the university's perspective, they're saying we're going to build on all of our available sites. Um, that's something they said. But I think they also say that uh, People's Park has... Uh, um, I think the university also talks about People's Park specifically being a priority um, in terms of making it safer, um, having there be less crime there and this sort of thing. Mm. Well, is it an unsafe area? Or is the crime rate high in that, that neighborhood, Allie? Yeah, the crime rate I know has gone up um, in the last three years for sure. Um, I don't know how it compares to other places in Berkeley that have concentrations of crime? I'm not sure. Maybe, mm. Supriya, you could speak to that? I think the crime rate itself, uh, unfortunately, has been contested and there hasn't been a full city study with it because another complicating factor is that it's a UC police area. So the UC police puts out stats on it and it doesn't have the same accountability board like the city does. So that gets a little bit complicated. But one thing that folks at the park note that the crime at the park um, impacts people at the park uh, the most. And, and those are the folks who are most aware of what that experience is like. And sometimes when the UC publicizes the crime at the park, they, of course, as they would, they center students. But in that dialogue, what's lost is that folks who are seeking solace at the park um, face many of those unsafe situations. And that, you know, people people do say that this is not a place that they want people to be sleeping at. And until the pandemic, it wasn't a place that folks were allowed to camp overnight. So I don't think anyone is trying to preserve it as a unsafe place. But yeah, it does have other meanings to people. Well, Ali, who's lined up in favor of this, um, of building on People's Park along with the university? Do they have any political allies? Yeah, definitely. There's been uh, a huge um, kind of support network to draw on for the university. And I think a lot of that comes down to the political moment around housing um, for the university and the way that they talk about it. This is this is a housing fight and this is an affordable um, uh, this, this is. Yeah. So I think that. Um, you know, the, the governor has gotten on board, the city has gotten on board, um, and um, part of that has to do with um, this change on the Berkeley City Council in general to be much more pro-development over the last five uh, or so years. I think that is um, a, a changing political moment in our city and in our state. And does the Berkeley City Council support the university? Does the mayor support the university? Yeah, so the mayor and the city council all support the project. Um, The city council hasn't come out uh, in particular really commenting 
on the shipping containers aspect of it in particular. Um, but I think it's also worth noting that like in addition to the need for student housing um, and housing in general in the city, there's also um, another aspect of, um, you know, the univers- the city used to be opposed to some of the developments that were being made by the university in general. Um, and uh, the city agreed a few years back to pull out of lawsuits against the university on some of those developments and agreed not to oppose the development at People's Park um, once a new uh, agreement was signed between UC Berkeley and the city around the use of city services. So mm-hmm. it, that agreement increased the amount of money um, that uh, UC Berkeley owes annually to the city for its use of like city services, like fire and these sorts of things, to $4 million annually. Mm. So, uh, Supri, I'm curious, there are the shipping containers, there's a uh, perimeter has been drawn. What's going to happen next? I think we're all waiting to see. <laughs> it's been very different over the last several years. Um, one tangible thing that people are waiting for is what the courts are going to say. The case is moving through the state Supreme Court right now. And one of the main arguments in that court case is that the city should have considered alternatives for this project. And though it says that it's building on all of the land it has available, um, you know, this project, there are some concerns about it. That is one side of it. Um, The activism around People's Park is a very varied thing. Um, There are students who have certain demands that they'd like to see for the park. They want it returned to indigenous stewardship. They want the money that the university puts toward policing the park instead be directed toward resources for students of color. They want a a place that uh, unhoused folks and other people can go for resources. So they're still fighting for those things. And that's what people have been raising at the protests. Um, Largely they see it as Mm. other step of gentrifying Berkeley that they, they hope to keep from happening. But in the meantime, um, well, yeah, it, well, it just seems like it's something to watch and it will continue to unfold. And we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. But thank you so much for joining us, Ali Markovich and Supriya Yelameli from Berkeley side. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Coming up on next on State of the Bay, we'll talk about the year ahead in San Francisco politics. That's right after the break. Stay with us. Hey, this is One Way Possible, your fellow music traveler. Join me weeknights from 8 to 10 p.m. as we cross genres, generations, and go all across the musical map, discovering forgotten favorites, future favorites, and all the journeys in between. That's Monday through Friday nights, 8 to 10 p.m., right here on 91.7 KALW and KALW.org. Join us for the ride. Tune into Cross Currents tomorrow morning at 11. We learn why a game that unites people from around the Bay Area and beyond is becoming harder to organize. And de- definitely in terms of like the, the situation where you could just go to the park and play. That seems harder to find. 
It's a new story from our series, Culture Keepers. That's tomorrow morning at 11 on Cross Currents from KALW News. On the next through line from NPR. Maybe keeping up with the Kardashians is the reality Brady Bunch. Kim will reassure me. No, keep rolling. They have built a multi-billion dollar brand off of sharing their lives. How TV blurred the lines between entertainment and reality. That will be story time through line tomorrow evening at five o'clock here on KALW. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. We are on the brink of a politically significant moment in San Francisco, and the voters are restless. We have an upcoming race for mayor. Several supervisor seats are up for grabs, and incumbents have low approval ratings. There's also some ballot measures that could set the city on a different course. And have you heard? It's also a presidential election year. So it's going to be interesting. And joining me in studio are Adam Shanks of the San Francisco Examiner. Hi, Adam. Hello. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you here. And we also have San Francisco State political science professor Jason McDaniel. Jason, welcome back to State of the Bay. Thank you for having me. We could have no better commentary and analyst for this one. And before we dive into all this news, listeners, we want to make sure to have your, you have our number. So you you can call in with your opinions. We're curious, are you supporting London Breed for mayor or are you supporting one of her challengers? Tell us why. And do you think the Board of Supervisors is executing in the way you think they should? Who should be in? Who should be out? Give us a call. We're at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. You can find us on social media or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. Um, so let's start with the mayoral race. I mean, the signs are already up. Every time I look around, somebody's got a breed sign or a lurry sign. So I'm going to start with you, Adam. It's the biggest race happening in this year. Maryland and Breed running against two challengers so far. Who are they? Yeah, so her first challenger is Supervisor Asha Safai. Um, he is termed out, so he can't seek a third term. So he is looking to the position of mayor and uh, seeking that job. And then he uh, has another challenger in uh, Daniel Laurie, who is uh, the founder of Tipping Point, the nonprofit, uh, and an heir to the Levi Strauss fortune, um, and is coming at this from a, a perspective of not having experience in city government and politics. So I have a little bit of a mix there, even though all three are typically labeled as political moderates in the race. Uh, they certainly bring different experience to the table and are really rapidly trying to distinguish themselves from one another. I mean, is it a good idea to not have any political experience in a town like San Francisco, Jason? I'm thinking of Daniel Lurie. I mean, he's really touting the fact that he's an outsider. It's not a new tact for people to take. Is that a is that a positive in, in a place like ours? You know, I think it's lucky for him being a relatively uh, uh, tremendously wealthy person who's, you know, a white man who who's, you know, had a does some good work with Tipping Point, uh, it's easier for someone like that, research shows, to claim, you know, uh, uh, w- without actually sufficient, uh, you know, or, or the kind of experience that voters often like, to run and say, it's the, uh, you know, I, I'm a better choice than the other candidates. Um, 
I, I know that most San Francisco voters, the electorate in general, tends not to to embrace newcomers, first time first time candidates, I should say. Uh, um, you know, the electorate here is a pretty sophisticated one, um, and they've often had a you know a rich tapestry of very experienced candidates. Um, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see if they're willing to embrace someone like Daniel Lurie, who just does not have the kind of experience. I, in, in political science terms, I would call him an amateur when it comes to mm. running for office. Well, tell me a little bit, Jason, about Tipping Point. We've mentioned it before. What What's the nature of that philanthropy? You know, it's one of those things that I'd heard about before. As as Daniel Lurie announced his candidacy, I, I found out a little bit more. But all I've seen really is that it's about anti-poverty, mm-hmm. right, which is a good thing uh, to, to, to be involved with. And I'm sure it's done good work and raising a lot of money uh, from various foundations and, and, and wealthy individuals who are interested in alleviating po- poverty, which is a goal that, I mean, the vast majority of San Francisco you know, voters would support. So in that point of view, uh, it, it is a very uh, a good thing. I'm not sure how relevant that is to the act of, of governing. It might be more relevant to the act for, of, of running for office, though, slightly more at least. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a history, Adam, where somebody who has a lot of money, maybe Donald – and I'm not comparing Daniel Lurie to Donald Trump at all. Well, that is not the comparison <laughs> I'm making. But there seems to be this idea that I'm financially successful. Therefore, I'm not going to take special interest money. Therefore, I am – you know, I'm a kind of above the fray of politics. And we have those billionaires who bought land in Solano to create a new city. Is that a powerful argument to make in a place like San Francisco? I don't think he's making quite the argument that he is fully and financially independent and thus uh, would be immune from the sort of influences. You know, I don't think that's that's quite his approach. Uh, in fact, it's it's been fascinating to watch. I think he's really tried to prove that he's a formidable candidate. And shortly after the new year, he sent out a press release touting the amount of money that he's raised. Uh, and I, I, I think in some ways he's trying to show that he's a traditional candidate mm-hmm. uh, in that way. Uh, and I think what we're already seeing play out as a dynamic and we will continue to see play out throughout the year is that he is touting how much money he is able to raise. And the mayor's camp is saying, well, of course, he's able to raise money. He's calling his rich friends up and asking for donations. Mm. And that is something I think we're going to continue to see over the year. Oh, interesting. Jason, did you have something to add? Yeah, a couple of things usually, as usual. But, but, (laughs) you know, context for that is in 2024, as you said, there is going to be a presidential election and there's going to be some statewide stuff going on as well. Uh, Money might be more important this time around to be able to fund campaigns. It's not going to be an issue, I think, for the mayor, but perhaps for a candidate like Asha Safi or or any others that might decide to enter the race, being able to getting crowded out, not only the fundraising, but of literally buying time to get your campaign message on the air and in front of voters. It's going to be very difficult this year because of our decision to change our elections to coincide with presidential elections. Mm-hmm. Well, and tell me a little bit, Adam, about Safai. What is he running on? And tell us a little about District 11 for those who don't know what it's like there. Yeah, it includes the Excelsior District, and he's represented it for two terms. Uh, He comes from a labor background, and he's really touted that experience uh, that he has as a supervisor and has highlighted what he feels is a dearth of leadership in City Hall in the mayor's office. So, um, you know, I I think with everything that he's bringing forward, including a a ballot measure uh, in March, uh, he's saying that he's taking taking a leadership position uh, that that we haven't seen from the mayor right now. Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly, the three candidates that we have so far, I would say it's fair to characterize them as political moderates. They are, and you know, this town has been run by progressives. It has a really healthy progressive block. Where are the progressives, Jason? 
You know, I think it's, you're very right to point that out. And, you know, in recent – in about the last 10, 15 years or so, especially progressives have been very competitive in citywide races, whereas before that was not usually the case, right? Uh, um, and the fact that there's no declared progressive candidate at this point in time, one who clearly identifies with the progressive camp, um, is I think an indication of, of their uh, – uh, ideological coalition being mostly on the defensive about the issues that voters seem to be most uh, care most about right now, which is, I think, public safety, some issues of like homelessness, you know, perhaps drugs, but, uh, you know, policing and, and law enforcement. Uh, these general kinds of areas are, are ones that, especially since the Chesa Boudin recall, uh, they seem to be on the, on the defensive. And I think it's interesting that they seem to recognize that both mm. in their own messaging and the fact that there's not uh, one of their candidates eager to leap into the race to challenge a mayor who is clearly vulnerable. Maybe Supervisor Aaron Peskin will call in and answer that question for you because <laughs> there has just been endless speculation about whether or not he will uh, jump into the race. And I think that's a reflection of the absence of a clear progressive candidate. I mean, normally someone who is the president of the Board of Supervisors who's termed out of the uh, you know, at least temporarily termed out of the, of the supervisor's uh, race uh, would be perhaps a, a very strong candidate. Um, the fact that he's not jumping in and his last statements that I saw were not quite as definitive as, as they might be, but they were pretty darn definitive this time around. It uh, seems to make that unlikely. And I think it's interesting that it's opened up a lane a little bit for someone like Asha Safi, who's been a part-time ally of the mayor, but not really, and a part-time ally of the progressives on the board, but not really, right, could present himself as someone who's able to speak to both you know, mm-hmm. camps in both coalitions, and yet at the same time, not really, I think, trusted by either. <laughs> so, so it's an interesting situation uh, uh, for our candidates so far. And I, I still think there is a lane mm-hmm. for a strong progressive candidate to, to get into the race. I mean, if, if, if Aaron Peskin was in the race, I would have to give him a chance, if not favor him at this point in time. Again, though, the fact that in political science, we know that when people are not choosing to run for an office, it's usually because they feel like they can't win. Mm. And, I, and so that, that's a strong signal for me. Well, I mean, London Breed has taken a lot of hits for the state of the city. And as you noted, Jason, quality of life are things that are motivating voters this time around. Adam, what's the status of London Breed's candidacy? Still strong or damaged? I, I would say it's strong. You know, it's interesting because what we hear all the time is that she has low approval ratings. And I think that's true. But all you need to do is have a uh, higher approval rating than the people you're running against when <laughs> election time comes. I don't know if that's true because approval ratings are not votes. You need to have the most votes. right? Yeah. And I do think she ha- is in a strong position. Right. And having another year uh, to make her case and for things like perhaps, you know, public safety numbers to improve, maybe the economy uh, studies out a little bit. Uh, Maybe voters mood will change in 2024. Maybe not. I mean, we are seeing absolutely worldwide, countrywide, statewide anti-incumbent mood. Right. Mm. And so there's no doubt she's vulnerable. I do think she's a strong candidate. And the fact that there's no candidate, especially who's an African-American candidate who could or a Chinese-American candidate who could try to challenge that part of her electoral coalition, I think, is really important. Uh, By the way, one thing that we should make clear for folks who don't know or don't remember is that this election would have otherwise happened last year. But through ballot measure, we shifted our elections to even years. So the mayor had another year, essentially, to uh, provide some solutions to the issues that have been frustrating voters. And what I have noticed recently is 
her really touting, here is what we were doing to address the problems hmm. that we know are upsetting voters, such as open-air drug markets in and around the Tenderloin. You know, law enforcement has stepped up there. So things like that, she's really saying, look, stick with me. Mm-hmm. We're making progress. And downtown, you know, we're implementing a plan to revitalize downtown, including incentivizing, mm-hmm. transitioning from offices to housing in certain areas, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think several months ago, her rhetoric was more um, just expressing how upset she was with the obstacles that she was facing from the Board of Supervisors, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, now she's really touting the solutions that the she's... Solutions. She must be running for mayor. Yeah. Um, this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW Bay Area, and I'm your host, Grace Wan. We're discussing the big year ahead in San Francisco politics with Adam Shanks of the San Francisco Examiner and also Jason McDaniel. He's a professor at, of political science at San Francisco State, and we want to hear from you. Are you voting for London Breed or one of her challengers this time around? You can give us a call at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at org. So we have an email from Gina. She writes, we wouldn't need to revitalize downtown if London Breed hadn't messed it up so badly. I almost think she did it on purpose in order to turn the area into a junkie and criminal slum. Ooh, tough words. I mean, we kind of briefly touched on the fact that quality of life was going to hit hard in this election. Is that also going to play an impact in any of these Board of Supervisor races, Jason? You know, it is really interesting because there is there is research showing that the state of the economy uh, uh, and, and crime levels do impact voting for mayors, right? So usually mayors have a really strong incumbency advantage. It's difficult to beat an incumbent mayor, right? It takes really bad times to do that. What we've, I think where voters have been the last year, we haven't seen as much if, if that exists for supervisors or city council members, right? And so we are in an anti-incumbent mood and, and Many of the politicians who have lower approval ratings than Mayor London Breed happen to be on the board of supervisors, right? Now, they generally – I think that matters less to their reelection chances. So we will see. I think especially interesting, you know, Connie Chan beat Marjan Philauer by 130-some votes, uh, you know, four years ago. Um, that is one where – wow, you know, will that be different? That's almost a flip of a coin. Will it, will it be different? Or will there be enough of a of a uh, incumbency advantage there to – so that Connie Chan can say that I've done a good job of representing the district? Mm-hmm. I, if you if you made me bet, which please don't do that, I, I would say that <laughs> that board incumbents will probably have an easier time than London Breed because they're able to target fewer votes. It's a smaller number of voters. They can speak to them directly easier, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so they can really say, "I've been out there doing you know hard work to to represent you." Uh, and so I would say it's most likely you know not to see a sweep of some incumbents out of the board. Uh, um, but then again, with Joel Ingardio's win uh, last time around, I was pretty surprised by that as well. So if, if that happens, it'll be kind of perhaps a continuation of that sort of anti-incumbent fervor. A supervisor who gets a lot of press is Dean Preston. He's representing District 5. And part of that is because it's the Tenderloin is part of his district. So he's often cited to talk about what's happening there. I believe his he's up for re-election. What does that look like for him, Adam? You know, we have yet to really see a formidable candidate uh, step up against him, and that'll be really fascinating because we've already seen uh, political action groups 
form against him, but there is no one really to support and, and that they've thrown their weight behind yet. So that will be really fascinating to see that play out. I was going to add in the uh, Richmond district, when we talk about quality of life issues, uh, just today I happen to be at a uh, press event that Marjan Philhor uh, uh, uh had in which she announced that the uh, police officers association was backing her and she had a line of uh, folks who have been victims of crime uh, describing quality of life issues that they faced so i you know we don't think of the richmond as the heart of the city's quality of life issues and yet uh, they will be highlighted in that race and uh, as you said it's it's you know, arguably a coin flip because it was so close last time. Mm. Well, you mentioned the Police Officers Association, and they're extremely powerful when it comes to elections. And they played a pretty big role in Chesa Boudin's um, re-election cam- uh, recall campaign, as I recall. There are a lot of leaflets sent out by them. And I'm just curious about various um, organizations around town like SF Together, uh, Safer SF, Grow SF, you know, are there more grassroots organizations that are playing a role or trying to get voter turnout for these quality of life issues, Jason? There definitely are a lot of groups that are getting a lot of funding. And I think that's not necessarily a nefarious thing. I know a lot of people would disagree with me on that, and I understand that. But I, I think it's a reflection that there's a lot of people with a lot of money who are actually interested and engaged with the community and, and, and care about San Francisco. And they are – because we don't have – we have really strong camp, you know, uh, limits on donations to candidates. And because we don't have political parties in the city where you can also donate money and, and mobilize pol- political action, I think a lot of people have realized one of the ways to do that is through creating these nonprofit groups like Together SF, like Grow SF. There's Abundant SF. There's, you know, these are just some of the ones off the top of my head. Almost all of those seem to share mostly a kind of moderate liberal uh, agenda of, very, of, of one sort or another. They're more connected to that part of the, of the spectrum. I also think it's a reflection of uh, a recognition on, on, on that part of the ideological coalition, the moderates, of how successful I think the progressives have been at mobilizing their groups and their neighborhood associations and their politicians, uh, especially in terms of like labor unions. So I think uh, it's perhaps a belated recognition that they were perhaps losing uh, you know, in, in the political fight. And so I think that's where some of that energy comes from as well. I think we are probably stretching the definition of grassroots a little bit. Uh, but <laughs> I think it's, That's fair. Well, that's fair. we have but, this email from you know, Julie. She writes, Neighbors for a Better San Francisco, Together SFA, Action and Grow SF are the latest corporate interests looking to buy influence at City Hall. Does Julie have a point, Adam? Or I, I think they have resources to represent a certain part of the ideological spectrum that maybe historically, and I'm looking to my left, uh, historically <laughs> we have not seen from that. that. Well, uh, historically, I wouldn't say historically. I think in the last maybe 10, 10 or 15 years, mm-hmm. perhaps, right? Again, uh, um, historically, you could talk about there was a robust downtown business and corporate you know, stuff, but most of that is not heavily involved in, in, in local politics as much anymore. I, I, I mean, this is oftentimes funded by wealthy individuals. They often perhaps you know, work for certain corporations or whatever. I think it's unfair to dismiss them as corporate, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, faces, right? Mm-hmm. But I, but I do, but I do think, you know, people are, it's fair to say like, look, these are wealthy people who are trying to get involved. I'd rather the wealthy people spend money and trying to get, you know, the message out to voters, even if I don't agree with it, right? I think that's a, that's a good thing as a political science professor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but I don't blame people for feeling like this is rich people uh, who are trying to spend money to influence the election. But I would disagree that it's buying the election. They're representing, as you said, they're representing views that are already there 
in city government from the mayor on the board uh, and otherwise. And so I think they're trying to get the message, that message out to uh, uh, to voters who may be not hearing it as much. Mm-hmm. That's when London Breed ran initially, she had the support of people like Ron Conway. The business community was really behind her. Is the business community aligned behind her, Adam? Or is, it, is somebody like Daniel Lurie kind of fraying that support? I, I think that remains to be seen to, to some extent. And that'll be really interesting to watch play out over the next several months. I think where traditional camps of support lie for different candidates, uh, th- that is really still a question mark. Mm. I think it's interesting that we, we're not seeing any of the candidates really taking an anti-big business, anti-corporation, that kind of uh, uh, you know anti-big tech kind of message that has been mm-hmm. a very potent one for progressives over, over you know over the last ten or fifteen years. We're not seeing that from any of the candidates, and I think that is it's going to be tough for them to differentiate themselves in that way. Mm-hmm. Unless you're Dean Preston in District Five, <laughs> <laughs> if, he ran, if he was from mayor, I'd really love that because that would make it more interesting for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think with the tech layoffs and the fact that the economy to some to many people feels dicey. It doesn't feel like the right time to take, you know, maybe shots at an industry that does provide jobs in the city. So perhaps that's something that's happening um, here. We have another email from Gary Tan of Grow, or from Todd, who writes, Gary Tan of Grow SF is a local hero. The people that dislike him reads like a who's who of the destruction of San Francisco. You know, people are all over the place about that. Uh, going back to the mayor's race, one thing I find fascinating is ranked choice voting. And, you know, we've seen in the past... Uh, Okay, listeners, you're not seeing the um, our studio guests, but they're both recoiling here like, oh, rank choice. Um, you know, it has brought people to office in unexpected ways. Do you think that rank choice voting or there'll be coalition building around that? You know, put me your number two, put me your number three, Jason and then Adam. I, I've often told people, uh, you know, for, for many of your listeners, you may not know, that's actually I do a lot of research on the subject. And um, I spoke with people in, in New York that they, the candidates needed to take a responsibility for building those slates, those coalitions, and yet the candidates are often reluctant to do so because they, they all feel like they can win, and so they, they don't want to say, vote for me second, right? Mm-hmm. They want to be your first choice, yeah. right? I think the consultants tell them do that, right? right. Especially when they're in the fundraising mode. Uh, but I do think there is a, a case to be made that this is, if this becomes an anybody but London, if it's an anti-incumbent race, mm-hmm. that means the challengers don't really have to do anything more than make themselves well-known. They don't have to necessarily differentiate themselves because they're just different people, right? Mm-hmm. And so in that case, you might, especially with a mayor with relatively low approval ratings at this point in time, she could get... 25, 20, 25, 30 percent of the vote, she could be the leading vote getter and still perhaps lose. Now, that doesn't happen very often. It's only happened a few, a handful, maybe two handfuls of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'm talking about the entire country. Uh, um, it, it has happened here in San Francisco. Uh, uh, Malia Cohen was, was yeah. elected, even though she was not the top vote, vote getter. Uh, um, it happened in Oakland as well. Uh, so, but it's only ha- it doesn't happen that often. And yet uh, it could happen here because it seems to be uh, possible for an anti-incumbent where people are not necessarily happy with London Breed. They don't necessarily love the other challengers, but they might find them acceptable because they're not the incumbent. Well, I would love to hear from maybe some of our progressive listeners. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you rank the choices that you have at the moment. They might not rank. Remember, they're not actually required yeah. to. Right? Yeah. So th- I suspect we'll see a lot of, of progressive groups that, that'll have just one endorsement or maybe even faint endorsements. You know, We'll see what happens there. Uh, uh, but uh, a lot of voters might just choose one candidate, right? Uh, um, it, it's something that I'll be interested in. I doubt we'll see this. It's something called ballot roll-off. Will we see more people actually not voting in the mayoral election because they feel like there's not a candidate that represents them? Yeah. And, and that's something we have not seen in San Francisco. It would be almost shocking to see it for a mayor's race, but it's possible. Does the fact that we have 
shifted our elections to coincide with presidential elections, do you think maybe increase the odds of that a little I mean, bit? We will absolutely see higher rates. We're, we're going to see more people voting. There's no doubt about that. It's going to be a lot more people voting, uh, even though I think a lot of San Franciscans will, this, you know, Biden versus Trump is a rerun of that, but you're going to see tons of people voting for Biden despite the Electoral College, and I do think you will see more roll-off, but it will be people who are not normal city-level, you know, mayoral-level voters. What I was – so I want to just talk briefly about the propositions and looking down that list, middle school algebra, you know, sort of stood out for me. And my – you know, we've done lots of shows about how voters are asked to vote on things that they might not have expertise on, but they certainly have opinions. And talking about whether middle school should teach algebra feels like something to bring out the moderates and all those people who worked really hard to recall certain board of – education um, representatives. Is that what middle school algebra is going to do as a ballot measure, Adam? I don't know that it will because it is uh, advisory in nature and and is not forcing the school district to actually implement algebra, But um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, But you know, I, I guess we, we will see. It's an interesting question. I mean, it'll definitely make it clear to the to the school board if it passes that this is something that the voters support, right? And so it is advisory. Uh, the superintendent has already uh, announced support for that policy, uh, but it's something that uh, motivates a lot of voters. Really mm. motivates them. I don't think it's going to drive turnout because that's going to be we're going to be in a presidential election, sure. right? But it does highlight the idea that several of these ballot propositions are things that specific candidates are using to highlight their policy agenda and show that this is my policy. Agenda. I mean, not only this one for, by Joel Gardio, the police, you know, uh, uh, staffing uh, 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 Prop E, uh, I think the uh, Prop F, the, the sort of drug substance abuse screening one that the mayor has supported, uh, you know, Prop uh, 1 or is it A, that's the affordable housing one, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, there's several of these that are all candidates who, who are saying, this is what I'm doing, this is my, this is, and they're using them to run for office, which is not unusual, it's, it's, it's sort of business as usual, but it's a little bit less about actual real policy, and sometimes more, they're not symbolic statements, but they are not necessarily full-throated policies that I would prefer get enacted through a board of process and approval by the mayor rather than done on the ballot. I, I was at an event that the mayor hosted this weekend that was to drum up support for her ballot measures that she's backing. And really what the, you know, we're, we're talking uh, how welfare recipients are screened for drug addiction and uh, really pretty hyper-specific police department policies on, you know, uh, chasing suspects of crime and also uh, tax reforms to downtown property. Like these are, you know, uh, it's a whole spectrum. But what she is sort of encapsulating it as is her vision for the future of a better San Francisco. And that is sort of her launching point into this busy year of politics. Well, Aaron Peskin did not call in today. But Uh, before we go, we have about a minute left. I want to hear from you. What are you looking for? What do you expect? What, What story are you hoping will happen? Start with you, Jason. I'm not sure about hoping what will happen, but I think there's a couple of elections that are interesting, which is two judges are being challenged. And this is a rare thing. Um, They are only on the ballot when they see challengers. And I know that that, uh, Brooke Jenkins, the DA, and and a little bit of the mayor have talked about blaming judges. uh, um, And it'll be interesting to me to see if this happens, which I doubt it will happen, that the judges will get replaced. And if so, does this become a trend where judges become a part of our, a more normal part of our political conversation? Hmm. What about you, Adam? What's are you looking out for? I'm really fascinated to see if we do get a progressive candidate jump into the mayor's race and really what it means for the city if 
we don't see one and what that means for the future of the progressive movement in San Francisco. Yeah, well, it's bound to be an interesting year. I hope you two are back in these chairs to guide us through it, and we're going to leave it there. Thanks for joining us again. That was Adam Shanks of the San Francisco Examiner and San Francisco State Political Science Professor Jason McDaniel. So happy to have you guys here. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, the Bay Area's own Partridge family will meet the Swami Three. We'll be right back. Tune into Cross Currents tomorrow morning at 11. We learn why a game that unites people from around the Bay Area and beyond is becoming harder to organize. And d- definitely in terms of like the, the situation where you could just go to the park and play. That seems harder to find. It's a new story from our series, Culture Keepers. That's tomorrow morning at 11 on Cross Currents from KALW News. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. You are just enjoying the musical stylings of Swami Three, a local band formed by three teenage brothers, Rowan, Sean, Noah, Swaminathan. A recent article in the San Francisco Chronicle called these siblings a modern-day Partridge family. That's a reference these band members might not get given their age, but either way, we're happy to be joined by all three Swami brothers here tonight. Welcome to State of the Bay, Rowan. Thank you. And Sean, nice to have you here. Yeah, thanks. And Noah, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, let's jump right in and hear from each of you again. Can you tell me what instrument you play and what your role in the bait is? I'll start with you, Rowan. All right, I'm Rowan. Um, I'm 15 and I play the piano. I'm Noah. I'm 13, and I play the guitar. I'm Sean. I'm also 13, and I play the drums, and I'm also the lead vocalist. And Sean and Noah, you guys are twins, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> well, I wish the listeners could see, because they they are speaking in unison. It's very adorable. So, Rowan, oh, we'll start with you. How did Swami 3 get started? What What inspired you and your younger brothers to start a band? Well, we... Our mom got us started on instruments when we were five, so drums, guitar, and piano. And there was never really a formal start, but we just kind of learned our instruments individually. And eventually, we decided that since we're brothers and we live together and we all play different instruments, it would be a good idea to have a band. So we just played some simple arrangements to start and then just improved over time. And now here we are. Well, you guys play at the Noe Valley Farmer's Market, right? Yeah, that's right. We play there occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. And Noah, I understand that you really wanted to feel like a band. So during COVID, you started this group up. Tell me what the April challenge during COVID was. Yep. So the April challenge during COVID where we challenged our friends and family on social media to try to come up with songs um, that they thought might be really challenging for us to learn. And so... Then we picked four of those songs and we picked those songs based on which ones we thought could have piano, guitar, drumming and singing in those. And then each week we work on one songs by ourselves. 
And then we'd record it and upload it and post it back to them. That's so great. And Sean, you're the singer in the band. Have you always loved to perform as the front person? Yeah, I really love performing. And I love also acting and singing. So for singing, I was with San Francisco Boys Chorus for many years. And then I left when I moved to Singapore. And I never really rejoined. However, when I came back, I got into acting a lot more. So right now I'm with a musical theater group called SF Arts Ed. And with them, I'm going to be doing a show at the Presidio Theater in April. Wow. So what's the show? Um, The Little Mermaid. Oh, what do you play? I'm playing the pilot of the ship and two heralder fish as well as a chef. <laughs> it sounds it sounds like you got a full plate there. Uh, Ruin, I want to ask, are you guys working on your own or do you have a teacher who helps you? How does that work? So, I mean, for the songs in the April Challenge, for example, those were ones that we figured out on our own because I can usually figure out the chord patterns and melodies and that maybe help know how to find his part in the song. And then Sean is good at just mimicking the singing and finding his beat with the drums. But a lot of other times, our teacher, which is, his name is Phil and he's um, English and he lives in LA. We still have Zoom lessons with him, but he has given us a lot of music over the years and he's made arrangements for us to play songs, just play a lot of the songs. So it's kind of, I guess it's a 50-50 split between that we've learned on our own and music that he's helped guide us to, to play. Well, Noah, I'm curious about what type of music you like to play. I mean, I did look on your YouTube channel and I saw a heavy rotation of classic rock, a little Don McLean, Blue Oyster Cult, Bon Jovi. Are you into classic rock? Yeah, I think um, I'm into classic rock. And as a band, we're into classic rock. I think that's one of the genres that's really good at incorporating, you know, guitar, piano and drums. And I just love the... Usually those are faster beats and they have a lot of different components and they also have guitar solos, which I love to play. So yeah, I'm a really big fan of classic rock and I would do that a lot as well. Um, Sean, are you guys thinking of writing your own music and doing original pieces? Yeah, we have actually been thinking of that. So over the summer, we took a music theory and songwriting class and that inspired us to try and write our own song. So we've been working on that, and right now we're writing the lyrics. Well, Noah, sometimes boy bands like yours have a lot of strifes. You know, people don't get along. They break up. How are you guys making sure that you stick together as Swami 3? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're brothers, and we try to always support one another. And, like, sometimes we will have disagreements. That's natural. But then we always try to work it out and make sure everyone's happy. And we try to make sure everyone feels that they get their one-third role in the band and keep everything fair and equal. I also think that it's really helpful living together because it's much easier to communicate with each other and see what each other are feeling so that we can better overcome any disagreements. Yeah, so no tantrums, no throwing furniture in your band? No. <laughs> That's good to know. Well, I'm curious. Do you have a manager or a momager? <laughs> Yes, we do. Uh, he's been helping us out, organizing gigs, um, making sure we all have the right stuff we need, whether that be for equipment and stuff. And yes, yeah, she's really important role in our band. Anything else? I mean, our dad also does a lot of work. He 
Um, he helps with stage setup and things like that. But both of our parents definitely help they keep they going and they're our managers. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Well, Rowan, I'm pretty impressed. You're 15. You're a sophomore at University High School in San Francisco. Having a band and doing your schoolwork, and I understand you also play tennis. I mean, that's a lot to juggle. How do you keep it all straight? Uh, well, I do prioritize my schoolwork because grades are extremely important in today's world. But I try to get things done as fast as I can. That way I can spend a little extra time playing music either by my own or with my brothers. But we try to get some band practice done over the weekends or over breaks. That way we have lots of time to work together. But yeah, I feel like if I just get my schoolwork done as quickly as possible, then there's extra time to focus on music. Mm. Well, Noah, are there bands that you look up to that you think, ah, we could, we could do that someday? Yeah, I think AJR. That's a really cool band. Um, AJR is more of a pop band, but they are three brothers who, um, who perform together and on a really big stage. And they started also just as a smaller band when they were kids playing covers on the street or out like local fairs or something similar to what we're doing. And then after about 18 years, they're finally getting their first arena tour in April. Yeah. And so that's just a band we look up to, I think, because it really shows like what we could be in the future if we put in that work. Well, Sean, tell me this. What does the future hold for Swami 3? Well, I think it would be great if we can stick together and keep working on our music. And eventually, maybe if people like listening to us and we get pretty successful writing our own songs and doing covers, I think it would be great if we could perform and more people to come watch. Absolutely. And Rowan, last question to you. Where can our listeners find Swami 3 playing live? Um. Most of our gigs have been at Noe Valley Farmer's Market or Plaza outside of Chase Center called the Thrive City Plaza. So we don't have one planned yet, but definitely you should check out the Chase Center website to see for any performances. Or you can check out our website and we'll update it to make sure people know when our next performance is. And it's Swami3.com. Yeah, Swami3.com. That's amazing. Well, I'm really impressed by the three of you. I love Swami 3. I hope it doesn't take 18 years for you guys to get your first arena tour. And thank you, all three of you, for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us here on State of the Bay. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Rowan, Sean, and Noah Swami Nathan. They're better known as Swami 3. And thanks for joining us tonight. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. Next Monday, we're off for Martin Luther King Day, but we'll be back after that. So check us out in two Mondays. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit the State of the Bay page on KALW.org. And if you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. Our email is stateofthebay at KALW.org. Tonight's show was produced by Wendy Holcomb and Katie Colley. It was engineered by David Kwan and the inestimable D. Was our board operator. A replay of today's Your Call is next. I'm Grace Wand. Good night and thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, make sure you've checked your voter registration and that it's up to date.